Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Alan Salarian, prominent pain management specialist who is serving patients throughout the greater Washington, D.C. area. He has, among his many accomplishments, served as a reviewer for the New England Journal of Medicine, was a frequent contributor to prominent national newspaper outlets, including, but not limited to, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and he has had major television appearances on broadcast channels, including CBS and cable news outlets like CNN and BBC. He will be joining us to discuss his career achievements, as well as a recent article he wrote titled, Hazards of Criminalization of Medicine, 398 Patients After Disruption of Stable Opiate Treatment. And with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Salarian. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Let me share my background a little. Uh, By training, I'm a psychiatrist and psychopharmacologist, and I developed pain practice later in my career, I would say. I've done a number of things, but I'm very proud to say that in my lifetime, over 40 years in Washington, I had the privilege to be trusted by some 10,000 people. Wow. 10,000 patients I have treated. I also had the privilege to be the chief psychiatrist for the FBI as a consulting uh, psychiatrist. And from uh, 1995, uh, no, from 1985 to 1990, to run FBI's uh, emergency psychiatric services. Uh, So in some ways, because of my uh, practice, uh, because of my reputation, and uh, because of my work for the FBI, uh, I thought I had been protected in some ways uh, for any kind of uh, abuse, uh, but I wasn't. When the wave of this criminalization of medicine began, uh, I also became one of the targets because of my writings, perhaps because of my popularity and because of my uh, defense of uh, patients uh, with mental illness, addiction, and chronic pain. Uh, should I continue? No, that's a, that's a great synopsis. Uh, before we talk about uh, the encounters with the DEA, can you share a little bit with the audience uh, some of your highlights early in your career, some of the achievements that you've reached, both in terms of the bulk of patients, the nature of the patients you were treating, as well as some of the traditionally academic achievements that you've had? Yeah, I had a wonderful, wonderful career. After my training at George Washington University Medical Center, I joined a partnership, psychiatric partnership, which was very successful in Washington called Metropolitan Psychiatric Group. I became then partner uh, with the group and taught at uh, George Washington University School of Medicine for over 20 years. At the same time, uh, I maintain a very active, uh, uh, primarily psychopharmacology uh, practice in Washington. 
uh, and later established my own center, Solarian Center for Neuroscience and Pain, uh, I had a dream of being the best uh, uh, and the most advanced uh, psychiatric center uh, in America, perhaps in the world, because we were uh, invested, very much invested in research as well as clinical practice, uh, uh, and had a very vibrant presence in Washington in collaboration with local universities, medical students, all kinds of teaching that went on. At the same time, we published uh, papers uh, in psychiatry and psychopharmacology um, on uh, uh, many, many topics from uh, unusual things like marinol and marijuana and its treatment for sexual dysfunction to treatment refractory depression, uh, opiates, how they fit in uh, the treatment picture. This preceded uh, actually my work uh, uh, with pain patients. Uh, it was really an accident uh, uh, that my reputation spread in the uh, Washington area to Virginia, West Virginia, and I began getting patients. Initially, uh, I saw it as part of psychopharmacology to treat pain patients. Uh, to me, a patient is a patient. That's how I got interested. Uh, later, uh, though, I realized the challenges faced by pain patients that was very different than what I was experiencing in practicing psychiatry, that as if pain patients and patients with addictions were second-class citizens, mm -hmm. and that the kind of things we uh, forced them to do really were unthinkable and in my mind barbaric. I never understood why uh, patients with chronic pain or addiction must attend daily methadone meetings and daily uh, methadone clinics to receive medicine. Uh, in my mind, I said, this is insane. We don't do this to diabetics, if we force diabetics to attend daily insulin meetings and say, I'm uh, an addict to sugar, that's why this is happening, nobody will take insulin, nobody would follow medical advice, but we have really cornered culturally our patients with addiction and pain patients uh, we burden them with unnecessary requirements. Certainly, I, and I think what you're alluding to is this uh, stigmatization of opioids as a form of treatment. And as a result, the stigmatization of particular cases of well-intentioned non-compliance among patients. Uh, it, that's a really interesting point that you mentioned. And I wanna tease that out a little bit more. When you were dealing with other psychiatric conditions such as bipolar, schizophrenia, you didn't experience the same type of stigma. Uh, how did the stigma of pain then impact your individual decision-making when you would treat these patients? Okay, as a psychiatrist, I became aware, very aware, there's a difference between psychiatric patients uh, and what people call uh, 
patients of addiction, that as if people with addictions uh, created their own problems, almost the same stigma that's used against pain patients. Uh, that is, uh, uh, there has been uh, a stigma against psychiatric disorders and people with psychiatric disorders, but things have evolved and things have improved uh, greatly. But even within psychiatry, uh, then this concept developed that somehow, although we realize that it's really a brain disorder and it's a brain dysfunction and a very complex multifactorial condition, the bottom line in terms of prejudice uh, has not changed even within the profession, psychiatrists mm -hmm. uh, did not like treating uh, patients with addiction. So they were more or less channeled uh, to various clinics as second-class citizens, uh, things that you will not see in medicine or in traditional psychiatry. Uh, yeah, there's a big discrepancy between the politics and policies around pain management and substance use dependency and what has actually been verified in terms of uh, evidence-based clinical medicine. Kind of fast forwarding now to your encounters with the DEA. You know, there's a, 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 a perception that those who are targeted tend to be physicians who are on the fringe of medicine, the solo practitioners who are practicing in, you know, uh, perhaps uh, certain areas of socioeconomic bent or perhaps uh, have been relegated to the fringes of their profession. But that's not the case with you at all. As a matter of fact, you were very much a thought leader in this space. Yet, curiously, your encounters with the DEA were very unfortunate. Uh, without delving too much into the legalities of it, can you talk at a high level the discrepancy between well-intentioned federal policy and what the DEA is actually doing? I mean, I would say this, first of all, uh, in Washington, I can cite four of us. There were four of us in pain medicine. Four pain uh, management physicians. Yeah, pain medicine physicians. Uh, one was Steve, uh, uh, no, Bill Hurwitz, who was an internist at a very successful uh, career. He was both a lawyer and an internal medicine board certified. Uh, one of the most intelligent guys, uh, there was Silvio Ziscovici, an internist. There was myself and then my associate, John uh, Merzak, who covered my practice. And now uh, we all went down and this happened in Washington, DC. We all went down. You said, uh, some people say that minorities are targeted and so on. I did not see that. We were not really minorities. We were really very mainstream uh, uh, fellows practicing medicine and the best of the medicine. Uh, but we became targets and we all went down one by one. Uh, and it didn't matter. Now, I think that the laws, uh, it's impossible not to address the legal end that what has happened with criminalization of medicine is that 
it's not only barbaric, but it's unconstitutional and yeah. it robs physicians of their due process rights. Uh, not only me, but my friends, for instance, Silvio Ziscovici, uh, the DEA comes and confiscates your money, your bank account, your cars, overnight, you're destitute. That itself sets the tone. I was on my knees. Now, thank God, I have a very uh, wonderful family and they helped me out. My legal costs, watch out, were $3 million. Oh my God. Okay. And I still went down and guess what? Without a trial, without a trial, I went to prison because there are loopholes. Because of these loopholes, they managed to put me in prison. And I'm not proud to say I was in solitary confinement. Wow. Uh, in solitary confinement, call it torture. And I was sexually assaulted. Why? All because I practiced pain medicine. And then I left prison, federal prison. Butner came on. Okay. And now mm -hmm. all charges against me were dropped. Every single charge because they said uh, prison doctors declared me insane. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, I still thought, I said, no, I want my trial. I'm not crazy. You want me to be crazy. So you won't go. And guess what? They never gave me my trial. They dropped the charges, but they never returned my wealth. Never. Or your they medical license. Money. How is it possible without due process for a doctor, the former chief of psychiatry of FBI to go to prison without, without a trial, without due process to lose all his wealth and this is America, but there are loopholes and DA methods, and this is, uh, I'll come to my article now. What's sure. unique about this article, I've written a lot of articles about uh, criminalization of medicine and opiates and so on. Medical data of what happens to patients after clinics and doctors go down because I noticed this when when Dr. Hurwitz patients uh, when Dr. Hurwitz went to prison what happened uh, at least three or four of patients commit suicide after mine after I went down seven patients committed suicide. Wow. wow. I published papers, documented this. What's unique about this article, I intentionally focused on the unethical and criminal acts of civil servants that even with all the laws that we have that make it possible for criminalization of medicine to harass doctors, they still needed to cheat and yeah. come out with fraudulent complaints without fraudulent complaints and duplicity and misrepresentation, I could not have gone down. 
No. This is no. what I'm proving in this paper. And in fact, I have published my book. It's called uh, uh, what is it now? Uh, Persecution uh, of Pain Doctors in America, uh, the new Tuskegee. Yeah, okay. I have documented every single thing of how DEA really intelligently, unlawfully did things to take me down and to take my patients down. Yeah. And uh, every complaint, imagine, filed against me, there were 17 complaints. All 17 complaints came from DEA-assisted uh, people, yeah. health professionals. Yeah. No, that, that's really interesting you mentioned Not that. a single one was a complaint from a patient. No, you, you, let's talk about that a little bit more about the influence of the DEA in the investigations themselves. So for context, I will repeat, the article is Hazards of Criminalization of Medicine, 398 Patients After Disruption of Stable Opiate Treatments. In this study, you reference the AMA studies, you reference certain laws, but essentially the study itself is focusing on the nature of the DEA investigation, how it transpires, and what are the due process violations that occur systemically throughout DEA investigations? So uh, what I wanna ask you is if you can kind of talk about some of the observations that you're seeing in DEA practices that you've studied, what are the consistent violations the DEA repeatedly occurs when investigating physicians? Number one, uh, there is, a tremendous amount of deception and trickery. They infiltrate physician rooms, uh, uh, examination rooms with fake patients. All right, uh, that's a very big thing. The basic philosophy in medicine is trust. That's not the basic concept in law or police. Not at all. Uh, enforcement. Okay, so. Uh, that's number one. Number two, very simply, due process rights are violated uh, when DEA comes and confiscates all your money in the bank and your cards. Okay, a physician uh, is at a, a great uh, disadvantage. Okay, uh, I was lucky to survive that phase. Thirdly, it's unethical, I believe, but also unethical on the part of medical boards, as it happened in my case, the district uh, uh, Washington DC uh, Board of Medicine uh, is bombarded by DEA provided data about physician's background. So now, uh, this is part of the bigger conspiracy, I call it. There is a thing called HIDTA, High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. Uh, Congress uh, provide millions and millions for HIDTA programs so that 
DEA has more sophisticated methods to track down patients, but how would it happen? Now, when I write a DEA prescription, a controlled substance prescription, it's automatically in the hands of DEA. Now, DEA passed this on the local police. So, when a patient of mine who's taking a controlled substance, driving a car, is stopped, oh my God, it's all high-tech technology. So, because DEA has the data and passes on to the local police and others, then my patients got stopped on the way home with prescriptions of controlled substances. Look at the game. And now the patient gets a fake traffic ticket, which is total sham. Uh, there's a search and medications are confiscated. Okay, later charges are dropped, but this is the harassment. That's an uh, interesting point. And I think people see that quite frequently where uh, the DEA will collude with state agencies, local federal officers, which, uh, you know, we can go into the legalities of federalism and whether that's truly constitutional or not. But we, you see this where they essentially co-opt local and state officers and agencies and then they pursue something knowing it's likely false and with the caveat that it'll eventually be dropped, but they go under the pretense of good faith so that if they do find something in their erroneous, illegal, good-faithed, purported attempt, they can then use that as evidence. Uh, can you talk a little bit in your paper, particularly when you highlight these DEA fraudulent practices, how they use this art of false probable cause or other misunderstandings to enact policies that they know cannot hold up in court, but they simply use that as a pretense for additional evidence gaining? I mean, I'll, I'll just give you a few examples from my article. These are real life examples. Uh, uh, for instance, a Virginia pharmacist claimed that uh, uh, I was over-prescribing opiates based upon only one patient contact and prescription. Uh, obviously, uh, by tracking his complaint and so on, it was very obvious that he was under DEA pressure. He was coached and directed by DEA. And he was uh, also coached by the DC uh, uh, Medical Board, Board of Medicine, uh, because there was paper trail evidence of communication back and forth. Uh, and by tracking the telephone uh, calls and faxes, uh, we were able to prove that actually uh, there was no way there was enough time for the pharmacist uh, to make a claim like that, that I was over-prescribing opiates because 15 minutes after my patient walked into the pharmacy, he was already reporting me as a physician over-prescribing opiates. Okay? We, we, we see that a lot. We, we, we see the coached uh, testimonies where nurses, patients will say, 
yes, this physician was prescribing outside of the scope of medicine. But when you press them, what is the definition of scope of medicine? They don't know. So this is a clear cut example. And you were probably one of the first in which the DEA used the templated scripts, coaching witnesses of the various healthcare professions, be it nurses, pharmacists, MAs, medical assistants, to then make blatantly false statements in a templated manner in order to just create the pretense that they have testimony that's passable in court. Uh, and, and that's really interesting. Um, why do you feel like this has been perpetuated in cases after a case and that it hasn't been called out yet? I mean, first of all, uh, DEA and DOJ have a 99% success rate. Uh, so, uh, uh, that intimidates um, a lot of attorneys. Uh, I would say, and attorneys adopt uh, a very defensive role. Uh, in my case, uh, I repeat, we spent $3 million defending me. Uh, at the end, I still went to prison. Uh, uh, and we had a plethora of evidence of deception by DEA, but that was never used, and that was never brought uh, to exposure. And I, I think, uh, it, but when you're government, you have the upper hand. You can trick the, in my case, we filed um, at the very beginning after the DEA raid, they had done horrible things to my wife and kids, uh, shackled them, handcuffed them, uh, a diabetic woman and my daughter, 17, uh, left them on the floor for hours, you know, horrible, horrible things. There's a DOJ report uh, three months later saying, yeah, these are horrible, actions that should not have happened and that the uh, charge agent should not be involved in the uh, in this case against Solarian. okay this is a report from the doj was it followed no the agent continued being involved it's getting away with it secondly there's a money motive this way that is uh, what I call HIDTA funds coming from Congress mm -hmm. to support the war on drugs, uh, bring in so much revenues for local police and uh, yeah. the state police. So they're not going to reject that. Yeah, you know, Dr. Salarian, there is a very clear financial motive, particularly in organizations like the DEA that are not fully self-funded. However, when we discuss these issues, we tend to lose credibilities in the eyes of the public, particularly the mainstream media. When we discuss the rampant due process violations, we tend to lose credibility. Why do you feel that it's difficult for people to understand and listen to our message and why do you feel like it's difficult for us to maintain credibility in the eyes of the public? I blame ourselves. Wow. I blame doctors. 
okay? Uh, we have been horrible. We have been just plain horrible in defending Hippocrates. It's shameful for AMA not to speak up and say, look, it is not right for policemen to license doctors to prescribe medications. There's no other place on earth this place. It is shameful for AMA not to say criminalization of medicine is barbaric because if you do the same thing to surgeons and internists, at least 20% of them should end up in prison. How can you do this only to pain physicians or physicians treating addictions? AMA has not spoken up. APA has not spoken up. We have not said. Thirdly, we have not published enough scientific papers documenting those things. Now, DEA, I may not even go there, or CIA, they do have budgets, they do have authors and writers, they're publishing and publishing and publishing articles, adding up to the hysteria. But let me even switch. How about CDC? CDC has false advertising, completely unethical, awful statements that pain medications and opiates contribute to heroin addiction and overdose deaths. This is formal CDC commercial all over. I have written, it's in my book, I reference it, to Dr. DeGutis, who was the head, uh, I think vice uh, chair of uh, CDC at that time. And I said, look, here is the statistical evidence what CDC is advertising is wrong. There is no connection between heroin addiction and opiate prescriptions. This is false alarm and terribly wrong. Yeah, so Dr. Soleri- She wrote back to me and she acknowledged it. What's very interesting, Dr. Solarian, is that Everybody acknowledges that the data purported by the CDC and the facts presented by the DEA from the mid-2000s are erroneous. They openly acknowledge that they got the data wrong, yet they don't seem to change their policies. In your paper, you seem to allude a potential solution would be to hold the investigational practices accountable. But do you feel like that's the entire solution? given the fact that the DEA, the FDA, the CDC, knowing that their policies are wrong, still continue to perpetuate them? I, I see three things that should be done on the positive side. Number one, we must start from the schedule of controlled substances. It is unscientific, it's idiotic. It cannot stand any scrutiny. It's not a scientific schedule, okay? When you don't have tobacco and alcohol in it, 
and you have marijuana and you have this. It does. There is a logic to psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. For instance, long-acting opiates with long half-life, such as methadone, they're not abusable. They're not abusable. They should not even be in that category. To treat methadone as if it's heroin IV is insane. Yeah. So I say first, APA's job, AMA's job, develop a science-based schedule for controlled substances and say, we're not following this monkey schedule. This is not scientific, number one. Number two, we really need a debate. First, within medicine, how can we live with criminalization of medicine? It is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. But I cannot expect lawyers, judges, Washington Post or anybody else to get into this discussion. If AMA is not doing it, if APA is not doing it, it's as essential. Yeah. Uh, So uh, before I expect better things from DEA uh, or FBI or police, I have to do my job. DEA agents are not dishonest. They are doing their job. They are brainwashed in the wrong way. But they are doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. We are not doing our job of educating uh, the medical community and then speak up with the channels. Wait, this is the first time now that a uh, AMA president is saying, uh, look, uh, we have a problem here because we see that in the last 10 years, uh, suicides and overdose deaths are going up. Uh, yeah, I have published, others have published it. This is not something new. What's not being said, okay, that's conspicuous in its absence is, look, criminalization of medicine has no place in medicine. If AMA president does not say this, who's going to say it? I know. That's not being said. And he must be pressured. I personally sent my own letter to him and said this, and I'm sure others have, but this is where I think the future is. Within our organization, within our democratic system, we must speak up and say, there is no room for criminalization of medicine. There is no other democratic country in the world that something like this happens. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a great point, uh, Dr. Salarian. We need, as a medical community, to be united. And it is through our divisions that we have allowed these problems to reach the points that they have. Well said. So, Dr. Salarian, uh, before uh, we let you go, uh, 
can you tell us a little bit about your current advocacy efforts and how people can support you moving forward? You, do you know that I am on exile in Greece? <laughs> we do, but you're also involved in organizations that deal with yes. patient uh, uh, mental and physical pain rights and equality, correct? Yes, yes. And the, the, my work continues to be uh, credit to uh, Kevin Byers, my attorney, and Siobhan Reynolds, who was the national leader for pain relief. Unfortunately, they died in a tragic way in a plane accident. Uh, but uh, the work that I do that's very low key now is primarily publishing papers and promoting research uh, with students, residents, and young physicians um, about this nightmare. Yeah. Nightmare, I call it, the witch hunt against pain doctors. Uh, I feel I feel good. Good, sir. Then thank you, Dr. Salerno. Appreciate it so much for your time. And again, the uh, name of the article is Hazards of Criminalization of Medicine, 398 Patients After Disruption of Stable Opiate Treatment. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Salerno. And I hope to uh, remain in touch and continue to promote the work that you are doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.